Welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology, and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'm speaking with M.E. O'Brien and Alex Colston, two of the editors of a new magazine about psychoanalysis called Parapraxis Magazine. Founded by friend of the show, Hannah Zevin, Parapraxis is a new magazine about psychoanalysis with a commitment to uncovering the psychosocial dimensions of life. In this conversation, I speak with Alex and M.E. about what it means to think psychoanalytically about politics and politically about psychoanalysis, as well as about their own experiences of putting together the magazine. M.E. O'Brien writes and speaks on gender freedom and capitalism. She has two books, a co-authored speculative novel, Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052-2072, to published with Common Notions in 2022, and Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care, which is forthcoming from Pluto Books in June of this year. She is one of the associate editors of Parapraxis magazine. Alex Colston is a PhD student in clinical psychology at Duquesne University, as well as a writer and editor. He is the deputy editor of Parapraxis and co-director of the Psychosocial Foundation. Finally, if you enjoy this episode and would like to support Red Medicine, please consider subscribing to the podcast or posting this episode in your social media. You can also help grow our audience by giving the podcast a five-star review on your medium of choice. It's free and it helps the algorithm recommend it to new listeners. Emmy, let me let me start off with you. I know you've edited other things. You're also editor at uh, Pinko magazine. What's your experience been like, kind of editing the first issue of Parapraxis? Has it been a different experience from editing other things? Have there things kind of come up that have surprised you? Um, yeah, just tell me a little bit about what the experience has been like. Uh, a lot of my engagement around publishing and writing has been in kind of marginal communist circles. And uh, Parapraxis definitely, although it's independent and a little bit ragtag, it has a kind of ambitiousness in its quality, extent, the sort of size and beauty of the issue, our fundraising strategies uh, around the seminar that Hannah Zeven and Alex both brought a vast vision that the time for a magazine like this had arrived. And so that was one big difference, the sort of ambition of what we were doing. 
And then in editing it, it was very interesting working with authors who primarily don't write about psychoanalysis, but who engage sort of multiple left intellectual traditions in their thinking as journalists, as political theorists, as sort of wayward academics, whatever it is, and trying to push people around incorporating psychoanalytic theory into their work and being setting their work in dialogue with psychoanalytic theory. So although I wasn't a primary editor for them, I'm close friends with Sophie Lewis and Max Fox, both of whom, you know, are just wonderful intellectuals I've been in dialogue with for years and years. It's Max, I know, through Pinko. And both of them, it was fascinating watching them grapple with what it would mean to write psychoanalytically. And the way for them that sort of brought in that into the writing into a kind of oblique relationship to the personal, to fantasy, to this sort of whole other terrain of thinking about politics. I knew both of them were interested in psychoanalysis and engaged it personally, but to watch them sort of develop intellectually in this new path was quite fascinating, quite beautiful, and really, for me, spoke to the richness of the magazine and the whole endeavor. Mm. Yeah, what about you, Alex? So I had worked um, as an editor doing a lot of history books and working with academics prior to doing Parapraxis. And um, I guess I was constantly sort of like bedeviled by this question of like, well, how do we live history? Like, what is it, like, how do you have a, how do you generate meaning in the present out of like historical struggles? And I just kept falling back on the fact that it seemed like psychoanalysis had a better conceptual apparatus in, 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 in figuring out how to inherit traditions and think about what it would mean to inherit, say, Marxism or, or, or the, the works of Freud or the traditions of psychoanalysis or even just leftist struggle generally. In that part of, I think, the oblique approach to the personal and the political, you know, always kind of like runs up against this this problem of transmission of how to transmit what's happened to us both personally and historically into a, a language or an idiom that really ha- has a way to talk about the conflicts that they generate. I, I'm I'm like I'm, I'm sort of like a I have like I'm like a, a like one of those pool dolls that you, you pull the string, you know, and I'll say certain things. I mean, one of the things that I constantly repeat is that like um, Frederick, Frederick Jameson has that great line where he says, history is what hurts. It, it's what set inexorable limits on desire. And I think, I think that like something about like countenancing that, that you're not imminent to yourself and you're not imminent to historical struggle, but you have to in some way articulate it, make it make sense to you make it make sense to others. You know, something about the psychoanalytic situation really carves out a space to have to have to work through those things. And so in a way, my editorial career worked with historians and worked with academics, but then there was something missing. And it felt like psychoanalysis was a thing that was missing. Even if even as I think some part of doing editing is a little bit like doing analytic work where you are like listening to the person, you are like working through their conflicts and you are sort of seeing where things don't quite mesh or work and having the patience to do to work with that, you know. Um, so I guess a, a part of me is 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 drawn to psychoanalytic thinking because I think it's already intrinsic to the editorial relationship in some way or another, you know. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the first issue is about the family, but 
also kind of running through it is this, like, you know, you're saying people that aren't necessarily of the psychoanalytic tradition writing about psychoanalysis or being in dialogue with it as a discourse. I mean, how do you see the magazine's relationship to it as a discourse, as a practice? You know, because reading it, it's kind of both holding on to it, it's kind of antagonizing it, it's kind of doing all these things with it. And I don't know, I'd be really interested to hear both your opinions on how parapraxis sits within, outside of both psychoanalysis. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think, in, I mean, institutions are tough, you know, being in them is tough. The psychoanalytic institutions have, um, there's, I think there might be, and I don't want to overstate it, but I think there is probably kind of a subtextual crisis in psycho psychoanalytic institutes because there's just not a lot of people who do psychoanalysis. It's expensive. It sort of sits kind of uncomfortably, like as conforming to certain like medical discourses and not. And so I think we wanted to just kind of count, count again, like countenance or just recognize or acknowledge the fact that psychoanalysis has its own intrinsic problems as an, as an institutional form, but then also maintain a kind of fidelity to um, the project of that, which is to articulate um, the unconscious, which is something that destabilizes institutions and knowledge and in ways of thinking about ourselves. So it's really, I mean, the, the tension is not like, it's just intrinsic to the project of psychoanalysis. It's not necessarily like um, it's been shaped by external factors, you know, insurance companies, cost reduction, managed care. I mean, managed care reshaped the way that psychoanalysis practiced and um, and it reshaped the way that pe people could access care and access ways of doing therapy, doing psychotherapy. Um, so I think we're trying to balance those two things, like being having fidelity to the psychoanalytic project over the long duration, but also trying to be re realistic and candid about the external fact, the, the quote unquote external factors that have shaped psychotherapy and reshaped it and maybe made it worse in some respects. I um, psychoanalysis, I think, circulates in a number of quite siloed and divided social world, sort of thinking sociology of knowledge wise, like on the one hand, you have this sort of current of left wings, humanities, academics and scholars, you have a sort of like passionate amateur interest in it in various subcultures, including queers in New York and some substrains of communists and other things. And then you have clinicians who are overwhelmingly quite conservative and quite centrist but within clinical circles, there there are there have always been and there are some very active and vocal radicals and people doing really vibrant intellectual work. And it's kind of odd how rare these different spaces talk to each other. And there's some real, I think, deep institutional and historical reasons. I think, for example, I've spent a couple of years at an institute in New York where there's a whole current of people who are terrified of the ex-academics who get into psychoanalysis, that they're too political, they're too theory-driven, they're too left-wing, they read too much Lacan. Like, like there's a lot of anxiety about it, right? And they're like fake clinicians or something. So like there's these divisions are reproduced, they're maintained, they like reflect complex sets of interests around questions of authority. And they're kind of ultimately fundamentally counter to the psychoanalytic project, to like what psychoanalysis could offer as a field of inquiry. And so for me, the magazine is very exciting 
in sort of bringing all these different kinds of people together who are, you know, kind of broadly share a left commitment and broadly share a curiosity and engagement of psychoanalysis, but are institutionally positioned very differently from each other in a huge variety of ways around these, you know, to talk to each other and then also talk to everyone else to like speak to left intellectual circles, to speak to clinicians in general, to speak to people who are developing politically, like young, you know, young folks radicalizing, trying to make sense of the world, and and to make the argument that psychoanalysis has something to offer. What it has to offer is compelling and challenging. And what it has to offer could be both reflect on and overcome the conservative reactionary elements uh, that have been so integral to the psychoanalytic project. And I feel like our first issue does that quite magnificently. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Alex, go on. Well, I just wanted to add one thing to that, which is that that's, you know, in the context of psychoanalysis and the humanities in, in the academy, there are all these ways that it's hard to know how to take up psychoanalysis, but it's, it's even, I, I always want to say it's even more vexed when you're a Marxist or something, if you're a communist, because there's been a kind of longstanding suspicion or skepticism about psychoanalytic practice. And so I guess I just wanted to say that, like, I'm, it's kind of funny to say this, but I kind of thrill to the fact that a lot of these things are irreconcilable <laughs> and um, like the, the various vantages and perspectives and the the different places people are calling from to make the magazine. Like, I actually like that. Like, it, it, it makes me think that like it's able to generate and make explicit some of the contradictions in society. You know, there's that kind of glib thing that people say when they want to sort of espouse a socialist position where they'll say, we live in a society. And I think psychoanalysis is funny because they're just, they basically just say, yeah, but it's fucking hard to live in a society. <laughs> so I think that's the other aspect of it. Yeah. Emmy, I just wanted to, to go back um, to what you're saying there about what the project of psychoanalysis is. Could you expand on that a little bit and tell me what, what you think that project is? You've got this great line in your essay about revolutionary struggle and psychoanalysis both opening up space for radically new ways of relating to each other that I really liked and really stuck with me. I wonder if that was kind of what you were getting at. Yeah, I, uh, this is a fraught and age <laughs> question yeah. and, uh, and a fundamentally unanswerable one. Yeah. But I would say my current orientation to the psychoanalytic project sets posing the question of desire at its center. The desire is both a necessity, an imperative for us to ask ourselves and to ask each other and to move towards desire and to take desire seriously. And desires are profoundly contradictory and fraught and ambivalent and rich. And what it is we want is like a a question that we never finish answering, right? We never arrive at our desire and there we are. And so both treating desire very seriously in the sense that people have to pursue their desires, right? Like I work with lots of trans patients. I've been in trans circles. I'm trans for years and years and years. And like terrible things happen to people's lives when they decide not to transition due to social pressures, right? Terrible, terrible things. Like transitioning is sort of the starting point of being able to have some basic sanity in the world. And that's all about taking your desire seriously, even if it doesn't make sense to anybody else. And yet 
transitioning doesn't answer anything, right? It just poses a new unfolding set of questions as any endeavor must on some level for it to open on anything positive and to go anywhere, for it to be anything but death. So psychoanalysis is a rich, complex, and contradictory historical legacy that includes within it a whole lot of people taking the question of desire very seriously and how fraught it is and how contradictory it is and how immensely powerful it is. Mm. Yeah, and Alex, you touched on it a little bit there. I think you used the phrase kind of suspicion about psychoanalysis in kind of Marxist circles. I've asked like a lot of people on this podcast about sort of repoliticizing mental health or kind of revolutionaries like Fanon and the French kind of cohort. And I think I kind of put the cart before the horse in a way. And I've never really sat and asked someone um, sort of where this idea comes from that psychoanalysis is kind of inherently kind of depoliticizing or kind of uh, individualizing. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about kind of where that comes from and, and, where that suspicion comes from maybe yeah well it's a complex there's a there's a complicated historical answer to that question um and then i think there is a question of the practice itself mm. um you know communists were in and around early psychoanalytic institutes wilhelm reich is probably the most famous character in this story but i think the principal difficulty is that some psychoanalytic practitioners historically, maybe even the majority of them actually, have thought that a part of helping patients is to adapt them to their social circumstances, basically help them to like go along and get along um, with the kind of dominant compulsions in capitalist society. And the the maybe the premier psychoanalytic school that really did that was ego psychology, um, which really blossomed in the in, in America in the US. Um, but even that story is very complicated because what you have is you have a bunch of um, um, mostly Jewish immigrants going to the United States, trying to adapt to a new way of life, you know, and they wanted to be a container or, or find ways to help people adapt to the American way of life to make their suffering less uh, extreme. But it was but it was born out of fleeing fascism, right? fleeing genocide, fleeing these sort of destructive social forces that had already ripped up a lot of the psychoanalytic institutes um, in Europe. Um, a lot of psychoanalytic, I mean, it's no, it's no accident, actually, that Nazis targeted psychoanalytic institutes and and and, and smeared them as a, a Jewish science. This impacted Freud's personal life, too, as is well known. Um, so I think there's there's already there's just this incredible historical tension and conflict in the in psychoanalytic history around whether you counsel a patient to adapt to the circumstances to just to just survive, or you you encourage a, or in foment a kind of um, that that very conflict and see it through for the left, and that really tore psychoanalytic societies apart over history in different ways. And so you're already in the division when you think about psychoanalytic history, like you're already in the conflict. And that is staged, I think, personally, but it's also staged world historically, both in the history of psychoanalytic institutes and also the history of particular patients as they pass through it. Freud, in his own way, 
championed free clinics, but he also was very, you know, he, 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 he suffered personal immiseration in different ways in his life and was and made no sort of uh, secret of the fact that he uh, was completely fine with taking rich Americans money to do analysis. Um, and so I just think it's always been a kind of economic, political economic problem in the practice of like, how do you serve patients and who is served by psychoanalysis and towards what end and it and, and, and you know how it benefits the patient versus how it benefits the analyst the fee has always been kind of a contested question about psychoanalysis um and so i think yeah i think in terms of it being quote unquote a, a bourgeois practice i mean there's a concrete reason for that which is that often the patients who are who are, who are most served by psychoanalysis are people who are wealthy who are just trying to like you know ameliorate their everyday suffering um but at the same time it has this other aspect that is a, is is about trying to sort of foment the unconscious which is itself destabilizing and brings people into conflict with themselves and with society writ large. And that is something that's not necessarily just resolved in the clinic. It's resolved outside the clinic. It's resolved in politics. Or it becomes um, something much, much more uh, harrowing, which is actually it, 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 society inflicts a kind of conflict on the patient that they're trying to work through symptomatically. I mean, this is sort of Franz Fanon's real legacy is being like, how do you talk about the hospital system and psychoanalytic clinics and the practices therein without just reducing psychoanalytic work to adapting a person to the colonial situation or to um, form other forms of oppression. And I think so it's, it's a kind of a sprawling answer. I'm just trying to cover a lot of ground there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's really good. Emmy, is there anything you want to add to that? Oh, um, I mean, I, 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 Alex is alluding to this, but uh, such a part of the politics of almost any form of knowledge is the extent to which it's institutionalized into national projects that, you know, there are currents of psychoanalysis that became really integral to uh, social policy and social policing in post-war United Kingdom in the formation of the National Health Service, another current that became really integral to American psychology and to the management of warfare and social policy in the post-war era here, um, that psychoanalysis has this history of being taken up uh, in national projects in ways that are pretty fundamentally reactionary. Um, and uh, the kind of versions of knowledge that can be reproduced are also often very tied up with these national projects, right? Like I have, I don't know, the complete works of Lenin and the complete works of Marx. And why do I have these things? Because there were entire nation states that like promoted the reproduction and publication and a very particular mode of like how to study them. And yet psychoanalysis has maintained throughout that radical currents and radical internal critiques and radical thinking that I think has something to do with its object to what Alex is speaking of around taking the unconscious seriously and seeing where that goes and the destabilizing power of that. Like even, even in its most reactionary guises that there are threads in psychoanalysis that have something very powerful to offer the left. And I think collectively the left has been largely hostile or ambivalent to psychoanalysis. But I, it's hard. I, I think there is another kind of secret history around people using psychoanalysis for their 
own treatment and their own well-being. And I've been quite shocked in getting parapraxis going how many of the communist theorists who I've been in dialogue with for years and years and years, like turn out to be in four times a week analysis. <laughs> like there's, uh, there, uh, there's something there that I think we have yet to really adequately theorize. Um, I just want to make a supplementary comment, which is just that like, if, if listeners want to learn a little bit more about the repression of political psychoanalysis, one of my favorite books is this book by Russell Jacobi. Um, called The Repression of Psychoanalysis. And it's about this figure named Otto Finischel, who was a Marxist um, and who immigrated to the United States and sort of adapted a kind of more manualized psychoanalysis for more social democratic politics. And so you can act, so you can actually see the trajectory of psychoanalysis coming out of some of the uh, political conflicts of the Second International turned into this axis through the work of Otto Finischel. So it's actually kind of, me. it really is, you can, you can explicitly trace it through his life. And that's what Russell Jacoby does. But I think, so I just wanted to say that there, there the, the history of that is um, to, to be re, re-narrated or, or to, to at least be understood, I think. And that, that's part of what um, Emiya is saying, I think. Yeah, it's funny because as you were speaking, I was thinking my introduction to psychoanalysis was via my mum, quite fittingly, and she's like a left-wing feminist and so as I got older, after my first introduction, I was kind of, I was shocked when I sort of started hearing conversations about this tension and the kind of suspicion around I was like, oh, I thought they were all kind of the same, you know, mixing pot of ideas. I was kind of, the more I learned about it, yeah, it was kind of unsettled or find it really interesting that there is such this history of, I don't know, disagreement or thinking of them in such separate kind of ways. Um, partly because there seems like, like you're saying, there are so many examples of people on the left, communists, making use of psychoanalysis in really interesting and exciting ways. I mean, like even kind of in the magazine, kind of talking about Juliet Mitchell kind of turning towards psychoanalysis as she's dissatisfied with the new left and the kind of feminist circle she's in. Um, and so I guess thinking in that way, maybe individually for both of you in your work and more generally in the magazine, what are you getting from psychoanalysis? I mean, you've already kind of made a few points that answer that question, but kind of why, why turn to it now? You know, why, what, what are you, uh, what is it so useful for? I, um, I started my psychoanalytic training and full-time work as a clinician, as a therapist uh, three years ago. And so I'm pretty new to it. I've been writing for 25 years or so and uh, been previously did a, PhD program and did spent a lot of time as an organizer, mostly in HIV and AIDS contexts and in New York City and elsewhere and trans trans rights work and kind of various sorts of radical currents. And I um I came to psychoanalysis, I think for a few reasons. Uh, some of them are straightforwardly political economy, right? Like I completed my PhD as the COVID crisis hit and trying to get a job. Uh my the the job searches that I was pursuing at that time all, all got canceled. And then some of them are very personal. Like I was uh, coordinated the New York City Trans Oral History Project for a few years. And I had already kind of encountered the transformative experience of being an analyst. But I found in doing the oral history work how powerful it felt to sit and listen to people. And uh, that that really moved me. And I became really interested in sort of 
what it could mean to do that as a core part of my life practice. Um, but then also elements of my draw to psychoanalysis in the last few years have been very tied up with broader social conditions that I think I share with many other people. It was, um, I, um, so I have a degree in sociology focusing on Marxism and there's, you know, a common theory. I, I, I wrote, write about social movements. There's a common theory in social movement studies that I think is effectively correct that large-scale social disruptions are really essential to get mass social movements going. And, and we, we have yet to really know whether COVID might make a mass social movement, but watching the intensity of COVID hit New York, watching tens of thousands of people die in the course of a couple of months, you know, the refrigerator trucks filled with corpses at the hospital less than a mile from my home, you know, the, just this massive, massive social catastrophe that now we pretend like it never happened. It has effectively zero lasting reform victories, no mass social movement to speak of around it at all. Like everyone I know working on COVID policy all worked on AIDS policy before. Like it's sort of the same movement of public health people. And there might, you know, there, there might be something still to develop but the extent to which nothing came of a massive death and social disruption was so chilling for me that it made it very clear that um, that there were some psychic dimensions to what was at play, that we had to try to understand something about people's relationship to death and denial that is not simply translatable to Marxist terms. And I, you know, I'm certainly not giving up my Marxism or my commitment to political theory, but that there's a dimension there that we have to make sense of. And that that, that that really motivated me to get much further into psychoanalysis, to deepen my orientation to it, to not treat sort of working as a therapist as a temporary stopgap, but to begin to treat it as like a life path. Um, and I think I'm not alone in that, that a lot of the events of the last decade that are tied up with escalating social crises, ecological crisis, the unfolding protests around uh, police murders, Black Lives Matter that have not translated into substantive reforms, uh, the, the scale of the crisis around COVID, that all of these things suggest uh, the necessity of thinking about psychic conflict. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the first the first public writing I did on psychoanalysis was motivated by COVID. It, it was motivated by, by the COVID crisis. And I, I, I basically agree with everything that Emmy just said about it, there being something jarring about how the mass death event didn't actually did not only did it not change political and social conditions for people, but there was much psychical resistance to being able to countenance the need for that. Um, because there was something so destabilizing about it. I mean, I also was in New York when um, when COVID happened, and I and I did witness similar things, just ambulances around the block, you know, and um, this sort of disorienting like sense that there was a rupture that was not able to be like fully articulated, um, that was both historically determined, but then sort of like wreaked havoc on people's own psychical sense of their time and their life and their their relations and like that just it just generated these symptoms i think 
that were not reducible per se to just the social political conditions, but how people are taking them up in their lives. And um, so, yeah, and I think, and it, and it, it, you know, it came at a weird time too. You had these sort of, you had these social democratic bids for, you know, a kind of left popular sovereignty that were defeated. Uh, then COVID happened and it just seemed as if there was this, there was this kind of mini uh, decline narrative that leftists were suffering. And they were like, well, why is this happening? Why can't people come to the left um, when, when the evidence for the need for more ameliorative social policy seems transparently the case? And then there was, the, and then at the same time, there's this sort of this rising sort of fascist right wing forces that were that were that were really capitalizing on it, and they really made made hay, and that has that has continued to this day. And so I think a part of the political project of the magazine and the foundation is to try to articulate those contradictions and the struggles so that we can be more clear about what the stakes of the conflict are and and you know down down deep into the sort of psychical sediment uh, of what makes these political coalitions possible on the left and the right you know analyzing them right i mean psychoanalysis part of the reason why there's sometimes political quietism in psychoanalysis is because it's not necessarily uh, a movement-based practice, but its insight, though, is that you can take a synthetic phenomenon like the psychosocial texture of COVID, and you can analyze it into its constitutive parts and make sense of how it's impacting different people in different ways. Because that's what analysis is. It's loosening things. It's breaking them down. It's it's parsing social reality into its psychical components. And I should just say more personally or something, which is just a, like part of the reason why we embrace the psychosocial framework um, is because there's something irreconcilable between the psyche and society. And that becomes this sort of generative tension. But, you know, I, I was doing an MA in psychoanalytic studies during COVID. And that that framework of the psychosocial studies, you know, comes out of Julian Mitchell's work. It comes out of the, the British left. It comes out of the work at Birkbeck. Um, and so we really wanted to try to inherit a more recent tradition that looked at psychoanalysis critically from a more social lens. And it had already been kind of generated for us. And we didn't invent it full cloth. You know, we're inheriting it from a left feminism and left decolonial uh, uh, thinking and knowledge that came out of the psychosocial framework. And so it's, we're just, we're, in a way, we're just kind of making, bringing it to bear, maybe, maybe in a more popular medium uh, on these sort of ongoing crises that, that do not seem to be going anywhere. And, it, you know, it just we're saying those crises are not just social, you have to live them and that's hard to do. And so like, how can we articulate that from our various vantages? Mm. And maybe a more practical question, like how did the foundation and the magazine kind of emerge? Like how did you find yourselves in that situation where you decided you want to, I guess, formalize this question and project into a into an institution basically? Well, well, to that we owe uh, everything to Hannah Zeven, I think, in many respects. I mean, it was it was her idea to do the magazine. She asked if I wanted to do it in November 2020, 
And I was I was reticent at first because I thought, you know, there's so many left magazines. Like, what 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 are we going to do that's so different? I didn't want to just do another carbon copy of an, another left magazine. And I, I mean, of course, I wanted to popularize psychoanalysis, but I was like, how do we do this? Like, how do we ask people who are not psychoanalysts to write about it? There were so many sort of questions. I just would say that the reason why we did the foundation at first was just like literally to house the magazine. We we're just like, we need, we need, a, we need a nonprofit to publish the magazine. So we'll just start it. But it was Hannah's idea to do programming. And, and I think, and at first, again, I was kind of reticent, but then I just, it, it actually started to make a lot of sense that like, we don't know how to answer these questions. Why psychoanalysis, how to parse these psycho, the psychosocial conflicts. So why don't we just ask the people who <laughs> would read the magazine to tell us the answer to those questions, or at least think of, think about it with us, you know, in a way that we could actually address their concerns in real time and not just speculate basically philosophically, but actually get some oral history as it were from the participants in the seminars and the people who are going to read it, the people who would otherwise, you know, glean something from it. So, so we could orient ourselves better to what the purpose of the magazine was. So we wanted, so it ended up being this kind of like nice democratic collaborative thing where the mission of the magazine was actually built out of psychoeducational spaces, which, which was I, I, kind of by design, but kind of not. I mean, I would love to hear Emmy to talk, talk more about the first seminar series because, you know, we, we were kind of just like, flying by the seat of our pants and kind of made it made it made a seminar but it proved really effective for it to orient ourselves to the magazine work yeah talking about the first seminar really requires talking about the theme the topic um so we uh, i was brought on because i i uh, write and think about family evolution um uh, and that work had never been in dialogue with psychoanalysis for me in my writing until very recently. I have a forthcoming book entitled Family Abolition coming out from Pluto in June. Uh, it's currently available for pre-order and encourage people to order it. And um, uh, Family Abolition, you know, is this sort of emerging communist uh, strain of thought that draws on a legacy a couple hundred years old and uh, is sort of remaking it in the present. And then meanwhile, you know, psychoanalysis is very much a study of the family, a very critical study in a number of ways of how the family works as a psychic uh, unit um, in childhood development and neurotic production and lots of other things. And so there's, you know, there's so much here to think about. And it's hard to think about. It's quite challenging to unpack these relationships. Um, that uh, the essay by Rosie Stockton, you know, is one of two pieces in the first issue that does a great job thinking about the sort of historical critique of the family within psychoanalytic feminist thought in the 70s. Um, and the other is a piece about Marie Langer um, uh, by, by Greenspan, uh, an Argentine. Langer was an Argentine feminist psychoanalyst. And so Hannah came up with the idea to have the first issue be the problem of the family, the family problem. And it's for me being interested, being in psychoanalytic training and writing about family evolution, it was uh, just tremendously exciting that, um, you know, family abolition is pretty marginal. There are a very small number of people writing about it. 
And there isn't really like there's family studies in the academy, but there isn't really a sort of broader space of dialogue between the many different currents of people that write critically about family formation and the nuclear family. They aren't like in a scene together chatting with each other, you know, in a way. And that the um, the first issue of Parapraxis was so remarkable for me that like this collection of people, and it's really a beautiful issue, that have such powerful and rich and thoughtful critiques of the family, uh, the family policing system, the nuclear family, their own families, drawing on the intellectual richness of psychoanalysis. And in many cases that being in dialogue with various radical social movements and revolutionary currents of thought today, including family abolition comes up repeatedly in the issue in a variety of ways. And the first seminar, it was a fundraising strategy, right, uh, that people paid money, uh, sliding scale down to zero, but many people chose to pay money to participate. We had 50 some people who uh, attended pretty consistently every other week over six months. We had guest speakers and a syllabus that you can look up online. Most of the guest speakers agreed to be on YouTube, so you can watch the videos and go through it. But it was just this remarkable experience to have a bunch of people every other week arguing about the family and its relevance and psychoanalysis and politics and family abolition. Um, we structured the seminar. So the first third was on classic psychoanalysis. The second third was on radical critiques of the family, largely from outside of psychoanalysis, including Marxism and family abolition and black studies. And then the last third being sort of contemporary debates about the family and psychoanalysis. And it was a very powerful experience for me. It helped provide the context and the grounding to be able to finally finish my book, to have some courage to put out something that could be quite controversial. And I'm not actually someone that likes to piss people off. People don't know this about me, but I'm not trying to be provocative. I just find family abolition very compelling as an intellectual framework. And to be in this space of critical debate and dialogue that provided a great support for me in finishing my book and really provided great support to a lot of us in being able to think about what the first issue could offer and what it could become. Um, and yeah, it, it was certainly one of the richest intellectual experiences I've ever had in my life. And the kind of community of people that came together around it, bridging psychoanalytic clinicians, uh, uh, rat activists, radical intellectuals, some academics, was a very powerful experience. Well, let's, let's talk about the family then. Um, and I suppose there's a couple of different ways into it. But maybe Alex, you start us off by talking about psychoanalysis and the family and, and and how psychoanalysis kind of emerges as something to understand the family and kind of diagnose it. And it, it, that, that really close relationship about the historical formation of the family and the historical formation of the practice of psychoanalysis. OK, OK, I'll, I'll try. I'm going to try to give an overview. I mean, I think. OK, so I'm take, so I'm taking this clinical class on couples and child's therapy right now. And something that the, the clinician professor said was that, you know, when couples get into a fight, they're often rehearsing their family conflicts 
and the rehearsing sort of dynamics that that made them who they are um, in the crucible of the family. I think part of the premise or the pretense of the of not only the issue, but I think psychoanalytic approaches of the family is that actually that's it's not just in couples, it's in it's in your social relations that the family comes that returns to you in different ways. Um, even if you're in an antagonistic relationship with your your quote unquote nuclear family. I mean, Brian Connolly has really has this great piece in the issue where the naturalization of the family is an historical process. And so you can already kind of in, in, in such that the, the complex of the family, the edible complex of the family is not natural. It's built out of conflict between uh, different social relations that the family mediates uh, badly for that matter, you know, or, or, or pushes you and puts you in positions that you have to rehearse and operate yourself son, daughter, father, mother, sibling, whatever. And so I, I, I bring out that first psychoanalytic premise of like, well, you're just rehearsing your family relations. Well, part of the social critique of the family is like, well, where did the family come from in the first place? How did it become naturalized as an historical thing in the first place? That's that you had to conform to it in order to be a psychical subject. And so you can see these kind of tensions between you reproduce and rehearse the social relations of the family, but those social relations are themselves not just given to you by God or something. They are itself an historical product. And so there you can see that there's this kind of tension of like trying to adapt yourself to what is seemingly a natural social relation, even though it's not in order to get over the conflicts that are generated out of it. And at the same time, critique the form of the family right, that um, imposes the sense of natural social relation in the first place. Um, and Freud didn't really do the latter part of it. Marxists have, and I want Emmy to speak more about that. But Freud actually, if, if you read him closely, is not so quick, really, to naturalize family relations. He, in fact, thinks it's a kind of a wholesome idealization of the family that really people suffer under. They suffer under a desire to be a particular kind of dad or a particular kind of mother or a particular kind of child. And that is a way of conforming to an historical product. And, and Freud, for, for all of maybe his, his conservative biases, is actually quite candid about the conflicts involved in that um, attempt to conform to the family unit. Amy, do you want to make that comment that you were... Sure. I'll, um, so I'll, I think Alex provided a pretty good and uh, thorough in this time available sort of account of the psychoanalytic thinking around the family that's very helpful. There is a social component to this that Alex alluded to that is just so essential for thinking about the history of psychoanalysis that the bourgeois family reached its pinnacle consolidation in 19th century Europe that it was erratically different from uh, old feudal families and aristocratic families. It was a very particular kind of property relation and relation to others, right? Both the others who have to be employed as sort of maids and workers in the bourgeois family, but also the others who are excluded from the logic of the family altogether of colonial subjects, poor people, workers. And Marx and Engels wrote, um, Engels wrote a lot about the family and the historical evolution of the family. And I, I'm interested in sort of how Engels's career is kind of bracketed by first writing about the, the tremendous decimation 
of social relations, kin relations between working class people in the context of industrializing Europe in the 1840s, writing in Manchester. And uh, the pressures of industrialization put under a fragment in people's relationships and producing all sorts of like phenomenon that horrified Ingalls um, and bourgeois observers around sex work and queerness and uh, child sexual abuse and death of starvation, death of malnutrition, like all these things proliferating. And then, and the that was the counterpart of colonial destruction, the destruction of working class life. That was the counterpart to the bourgeois family. And one of the, and that's the, Freud is writing about the bourgeois family, writing about its tremendously violent psychic logic and the really dark fantasies that kind of underpin and hold together bourgeois family life, um, that it's a, a kind of ideal that uh, carries its nightmares along with it. And one of the interesting, unexpected, weird historical things that happened is the bourgeois family was briefly universalized to a huge section of the white working class and the so-called middle class of the industrialized world and was exported around the world and taken up by mostly materially stable people across many continents, right? That kind of as people's class positions improved in capitalist development, one of the things they began to do was to remake their family in a way that resembled bourgeois conventions. And this was both a cultural phenomenon of being like, oh, this is the right way to do a family, but also material phenomenon that the bourgeois family structure was well suited to property accumulation and to navigating the dynamics of labor markets and things like that. And so you have broad sections of the working class, like the American suburbs, for example, adopting the bourgeois family as a way of living. And this corresponds to the widespread institutionalization of psychoanalysis and the sort of taking up of psychoanalysis as the sort of mainstream project of psychology briefly. And what's happened since the 70s is an unraveling of both. The sort of bourgeois family of Freud's critique seems relatively absent in the landscape. I mean, bourgeois people certainly still have families and include many elements, but the, the kind of idea of a housewife, right, is extremely anachronistic at this point and is completely unavailable to working class people across the board. And so this unraveling of a certain kind of family ideal, and it's unraveled in ways that actually psychoanalysis has so much to offer in trying to think about because it's unraveled has unleashed its fantasies in particular kinds of ways into the social world and opened up the kind of psychic landscape, you know, and people, people, depending on their political persuasion, theorize this in a huge variety of different ways. Like kind of on the one hand, you have fascists and social conservatives, you have people like Christopher Lash characterizing our world as narcissistic. And then you have all sorts of radical thinking about the family that's helped proliferate in recent years. And so this sort of institutional unraveling of the family has opened up a different kind of psychic space of how people respond to that. That only makes sense when you put that in relation to the psychoanalytic critique of the family. Like, what is the role of the mother, the father, the child, 
you know, the, the maid, right? Even if these figures don't quite exist in the ways that they used to, their psychic logic still adheres very strongly in what it means to be autonomous or caring or dependent or helped. Like, you know, rubrics that concern almost all of us are so tied up with the psychoanalytic insights into the logic of the family and are now widespread. I mean, they always have been, but are now in a new way, widespread political concerns and political debates. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can you can ask a simple question, I think, which is that if the family is a natural relation, why does it have to be reinforced and enforced so often? It's a kind of beguiling question. If it's if it's just natural that you're in a heterosexual filial couple, then why does it constantly have to be legislated? Why does it constantly have to be imposed upon people? I mean, Melinda Cooper has this great, her work is amazing, but part of what she's describing, I think is, is part of what Emmy is describing, which is that there's a persistence of the family that's imposed in a kind of bipartisan way, as it were, uh, uh, where you underwrite, you know, financial debt via family obligations. You underwrite every social obligation in the forms of like familial reproduction. Why is that? You have to impose that upon the working class. I mean, Julia Mitchell says this again and again and again in her work, which is that the bourgeois family is something that gets imposed. It's something that's it's historical product and it's something that gets imposed upon the, uh, the, ma- the, the masses of working people that were already to some extent as working people, you know, beyond the confines of the family. And yet in order to re- reproduce people, you go back into the private relations of uh, the, the domicile of the hearth. And that in that kind of form of social reproduction generates, as Emmy's rightly saying, just in, in, immense symptoms of discontent, discontent about the family form itself. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about your comment earlier, Alex, about everything's falling apart. You know, why aren't people becoming communists? You know, <laughs> you know, what's what's kind of not clicking? And I guess maybe this relates to kind of what you're saying about as the family as a kind of material structure disintegrates and retreats into more I guess like legal and psychic planes these kind of very toxic fantasies around the family and you know around the father as you you kind of point out in your essay become these like driving forces of you know well I can't become a communist or I can't become something else because that's a threat to this fantasy of the family. Emmy I guess like so I guess the question is how do you see the fantasy of the family and its kind of relation to this this shifting kind of material conditions that you're talking about. How does it relate to all these bombastic formations of kind of proto and out and out fascism that we have to deal with every day that that's, that are kind of obsessed with the family or as you know is covered in the magazine the figure of the child, um, especially in kind of yeah. Anyway, you can <laughs> I'm rambling. <laughs> Yeah. So Alex and I both write about this in the issue um, and were somewhat in dialogue with each other as we were drafting it. So um, certainly the, the fantasy is this object of really tremendous obsession on the far right right now. And uh, we see this, among other ways, in the attacks on trans children that Max Fox writes about in Queer Children. And so I, I wanted to, was trying to think about the kind of historical conjunction of like, why has the family become an object of such obsession 
while it's historically kind of unraveling in a number of ways, like how this normative family logic is like actually much harder to find in the social world. And I, yeah, and that's, that's a question that I think ultimately we need psychoanalytic theory in part to answer. Both Alex and I make reference in our pieces to the myth of totem and taboo offered by Freud at this kind of proto-history of human civilization of a um, primal father who has it all. He has all the women, he has all the power, he has the palace, and that the brothers conspire to murder him and in so doing give birth to democracy, uh, society, uh, patriarchy, and uh, society as a collection of fathers as a collection of families but they but in in this murder they uh, make a pact that none of them will have it all they will um, none of them will have all the women none of them will sleep with their mothers right so it's the prohibition around incest the sort of formation of patriarchy and it um, Lacan uses this as a, a way of understanding the core logic of masculinity masculinity is both the injunction that everyone has to follow the law and the exception of the figure beyond the law who guarantees it, right? The primal father. And this tension is what masculinity is, this sort of like vacillation between those two, which help reinforce and consolidate. Um, and, um, and, you know, like Lacan makes the very obvious point that like the father is dead. Like yeah. patriarchy begins with the corpse of the father mm -hmm. the entire edifice of nuclear families headed by fathers psychically depends on the murder of the father who has it all and one of the odd things about so much of patriarchal thinking on the far right is that it is not just about oh, we should all live in our functional nuclear families where the fathers are in charge and everyone goes along and gets along. Like that's not, that's there. But what they're really interested in is all powerful fathers, right? They're interested in fathers who, who can sexualize their daughters on national TV. They're interested in men who can brag about having committed rape. They're interested in men who sell to like, young adolescents tips on how to engage in sex trafficking right like the figures the masculine figures of the far right are monstrous they're perverse they're excessive they're these men of immense power right and that they that what's being pursued is not simply a sort of stable patriarchy of the nuclear family it's the fantasy of the primal father it's an effort at like a zombie resurrection of the primal father is driving so much of the far right right now. And so it suddenly makes sense that the zombie resurrection of the primal father is happening precisely at the historical moment that so much of like normal patriarchal family relations are disintegrating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that was great. I mean, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, J Jacqueline Rose has this great thing that she says about um you know the the figure with the phallus the reason why she and Juliet mitchell and other feminists were drawn to the the lacanian theory of the of, of the phallus is that lacan was quite candid about the fact that it's it's an illusion 
It's a phantasm. You don't really have it. And the whole idea is that it's a signifier of what you don't have, the signifier of lack. And you cover over that lack in different ways. And that's part of what neurosis is. But the the paternal or the fatherly, perverse father figure is precisely the person for whom lack is intolerable, um, such that such that the perversity of it is that they have to impose having what the child needs or what you know or what the woman needs or whatever that they're gonna that they impose it and part of the psychoanalytic work is 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 realizing the negativity of that subject that that fathers too are divided and that they have an unconscious and that no one is the exception that, the, that no one actually embodies the the so-called exception you know I, I i say in the piece that you know the paradox of the, the the psychoanalytic law of castration is that it is precisely a law without content like it's not, you know, there's no, it's just, it's, it's a way to say that you, you don't know what you're saying and you don't know what you're doing and you need another person to help you figure it out. And that, in that sense of dependency is intolerable. You know, it's hard to tolerate that. Um, and I think, so I think that it, it kind of just implicit in this theory is a theory of mutual social dependency where castration is the symbol of it, I suppose, but it's actually quite commonsensical. It's just, I need someone to tell me back to me what I'm saying so I have it, so I can hear myself. I mean, the second way I like principle is that you don't hear yourself talk. You talk and you talk and you repeat and you say stuff and you and, and you try to give an account of yourself, but it doesn't quite go here. There's something missing, right? There's something that you can't quite say, something that you can't quite capture about yourself. And why does analysis need two people? You need another, you need an analyst. To, to converse with you, um, to get a sense of that, of what's unconscious to you, of how, of how you're appearing, um, of how you're, of what you're saying, you know, and that you're in the division, you're in the division that's, that's socially constituted. And in fact, socially embodied in the analytic situation was so that you're trying to, you're trying to be a self-consistent master, you're trying to be a master of yourself, but, and yet you can't, you can't be fully transparent to yourself. You can't be fully um, cognizant of what of, of who and what you are and there's a you know, so it's it, the, the language of psychoanalysis is so provocative castration you know um, perversity um, but it, it counts for it accounts in some respects for um, I think quite commonsensical as it were or phenomenological experiences which with that we're not imminent to ourselves we don't quite know what we're saying and we don't know quite why we're saying it um, and I think part of the imposition of the ideal of the family is that it will, if you just slot into these different terms, father, mother, child, and perform them, then, then there will be consistency and a guarantee that you'll reproduce the right kind of person and be the right kind of person. But psychoanalysis is quite candid. It's like, that's not how it works because, because those relations themselves are constitutive of antagonisms, not only material antagonisms, but psychical antagonisms of differentiation. If you have a sibling, you differentiate yourself from them. If you're, if you're, if you, your, your, your sexual object choice is matters of differentiation and identification with different parents, right. And different figures. So it's, it's born out of a, of, of, a, of conflict and exclusion and um and being misunderstood or being misrecognized as a person um, and so psychoanalysis in working through those conflicts might use the 
the family form as kind of poles or symbols or ways of thinking about the person, but they're but the the beguiling aspect of psychoanalysis is that the unconscious is not reducible per se to those socially coordinated roles of being father and mother and child because they can't be because they're born of conflicts something escapes them something there's like a residue there's the real that doesn't quite work with those roles you know as as the common put it Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to M.E. and Alex for such a wonderful conversation. If you'd like to subscribe to Pyropraxis magazine, you can find links in the show notes. And if you'd like to keep up to date with Red Medicine, you can subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Twitter at red underscore medicine underscore underscore. And thank you to Mark Pilkington, who has provided the soundtrack to this episode that you're listening to right now and all of the soundtracks for Red Medicine from here on in. Thank you.